Amen. Thanks, David. I don't know if you can tell I'm a little extra pink this morning. Uh, my family, we went up to, uh, my family lives in Mansfield, Ohio. We went up to Mansfield for the weekend, and I got out on the lake uh, on a jet ski, and I always forget to put on sunscreen until it's too late. Um, so I'm kind of like slightly pink. But um, I, I came back, came home a little early to preach this morning, and <clears throat> my wife is bringing our two angels home uh, three hours in a car ride today, so um, you can pray for her. <laughs> so we've got uh, quite a text this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at Genesis 48, 1 through 49.27, so almost two chapters, quite a full text, and uh, we, won't, uh, we won't belabor it. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 48. Uh, as you're turning there, I just want to mention one thing. Do you ever, do you ever wonder kind of how we, we break out sermon texts? How do, we, how do we determine kind of what units of text we're preaching? Well, there's definitely an art and a science to it. But if you look at Genesis 47, 29, and 30, just before our passage begins, Jacob says, so Jacob's giving instructions to his sons. We're right at the end of Genesis, right? We're about, about to move into the Exodus. Jacob is old, and he says to his sons, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. So that's, that's basically the end of chapter 47. Now flip forward to Genesis 49, 29. And he says, Bury me with my fathers. So you hear a kind of a bookend there. He said at one end of our passage, don't bury me here in Egypt. Take me back to Canaan. Bury me with my fathers. And again, at the end of our passage, bury me with my fathers. So that's a good indication we're dealing with one whole literary unit. And sometimes that just leads you to preach through a, you know, a whole slew of verses. But um, it's, a, it's a long one, and, and, and uh, I, well, let's get started. I have just a good Baptist outline for you this morning. Three points alliterated. The family of Israel, number one. The future of Israel, number two. And the faith of Israel, number three. Number one, the family of Israel. Number two, the future of Israel. And number three, the faith of Israel. So getting into number one. I'll pick up with our... Uh, with our passage starting in verse, or chapter 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And blessed me. It's a key word in this whole passage, blessing. Blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give you this land, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. 
As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Let's stop here for a second. Notice that Joseph's two sons, which would be Jacob's grandsons, right? Joseph is the son of Jacob, so Jacob's, so Joseph's sons would be Jacob's grandsons. Their names are Ephraim and Manasseh, and they've been promoted to the status of Jacob's sons right along with Reuben and Simeon. Jacob is claiming Joseph's sons, his grandsons, as his own sons. They're getting a major promotion, but what's going on there? We need to keep reading to find out. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless, keyword, bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. So Joseph's sons are on his knees, presumably they're fairly young, maybe uh, 10, 12, who knows. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his, right, in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. That's key. So he's setting it up so that Jacob will put his right hand on the older, Manasseh, and his left hand on the younger, Ephraim. And it, Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. So he's crossed the, how Joseph intends it to work. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So even though Jacob is old, he's going blind, he's still clinging to the hope of the Abrahamic promise that God would bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. But he mixes up the boys. He's supposed to put his right hand on the older and his left hand on the younger, but he does it backwards. Or does he? Verse 17, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head, uh, on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He, shall, he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, 
his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. What's happening here? Joseph expects Jacob to keep the ancient custom of primogeniture, just a big word meaning that the birthright of the legitimate firstborn and the blessing for the inheritance of the family go to the older son. So it's a birthright and a blessing and an inheritance, and that would go to the legitimate firstborn. But Jacob says no. And Joseph, you know, probably thinks he's having a that Jacob's having a senior moment, and he insists, no, this is how I mean for it to be. Is there a pattern for this? We've been, we're almost at the end of Genesis. I think this is probably going to sound familiar, right? God favored Abel over Cain. He, he favored Abel's sacrifice. He chose Isaac instead of the firstborn, Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not the older Esau. He chose Joseph over Reuben. And now he's choosing the younger Ephraim over Manasseh. God overturns worldly expectations. He does things differently again and again. We've just, this is the entire story of Genesis. He's turning things upside down. And then notice, Jacob's eyes are dim. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? This is Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. And there's the passage, right, where Esau goes out to prepare the, uh, the, the meat like um, like Isaac likes it, and Rebecca overhears, and she sends Jacob in with uh, kind of a fake, you know, a, a fake meal. He's pre- she's prepared it close enough, and she puts on the skins. So Isaac thinks that it's Esau, but it's not, and so he gets fooled. There's a reversal here. There's no, there's no deceit involved, and yet again we have the younger being preferred over the older. And in this whole passage, it's really, it's really interesting. The point, you, we're all familiar with Hebrews 11, right? The hall of faith. This is the one point that the author of Hebrews picks up on in this whole story. By, so I'm going to pick up a little early in Hebrews 11. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. That's Genesis 27. We just talked about that. Here's the, here's the passage that relates... Here's the text that relates to to, to our our text today. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So the author of Hebrews has picked up on this moment. Why is that? We'll find out. But Jacob is tracing the Abrahamic line of promise and he knows the pattern of God picking the younger son. This is kind of his interpretation of the past and it informs his expectations of the future. And so he blesses the younger son. And let's keep going with the blessing in verse 20. So he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. That thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, 
but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. We don't know anything about this hillside, this, uh, this mountain slope of the Amorites, which just tells you there's, edit, there's, there's editing going on here. You're not getting the whole story. That's not an episode that we learned about. It's just something that gets tossed in here. And so you're, you're getting, Moses is kind of giving us the highlights of the lives of the patriarchs, but there's a lot that's left out, and, and we just get a glimpse at it here. And so now we have, we've seen the blessing for Joseph's sons, and now, Jace, uh, now Jacob is going to call in the rest of his sons and prophesy over them. This, this text is normally called kind of Jacob blessing his sons. That's the, probably the, the text you'll see over, over the chapter. But if you look closely, he's really more, more, than, more than blessing. There are some blessings. He's prophesying. He's predicting. And there are even a couple curses Chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable is water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What's going on with Reuben? If you remember in Genesis 35, Jacob discovers that Reuben went and slept with Bilhah, which is one of Jacob's concubines and the mother of his brothers, Dan and Naphtali. So Reuben has, has basically slept with one of Jacob's wives. And, he's, and Jacob's recalling that and saying, because of that you shall not have preeminence. He's, he's almost revolted by it. Continuing on with the blessing in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. But let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. That sounds pretty violent. Cursed be their anger, there's a curse. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So we heard about what Reuben did. What have Simeon and Levi done In Genesis 34, their sister Dinah, in a horrible passage, was raped, and they reacted violently by basically mowing down an entire city of men, the men who did it. They went to the city and just completely leveled it and killed everyone. So Jacob is, Jacob is almost expressing a little bit of fearfulness. Let me not come into their counsel. They're, they are violent. Their wrath is cruel. And also it's interesting, he says, I will, uh, speaking of uh, particularly of Levi, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. If you look forward, when the 
12 tribes of Israel enter the promised land, Levi doesn't have a territory. They are scattered. They have cities spread throughout the 12 tribes in the promised land. And so perhaps just a kind of an, a, an illusion or, or a, a foreshadowing that, that they will not have their own land, but they will be distributed throughout the lands, to ser- throughout the, the, uh, the different tribes to serve, uh, to be devoted to the Lord. That brings us to Judah, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. There's some wordplay going on here. Judah means praise. And Jacob is saying, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's not exactly Genesis 3.15. The heel of the offspring will crush the head of the serpent, but it's close. There's maybe an echo there. And Jacob says, your father's sons shall bow down before you. In Genesis 37, Joseph dreamed three times that his brothers would bow down before them, but would bow down before him. And in the ensuing chapters, that's what they did. They came and bowed down before him three times. So we have an original promise and an original fulfillment in Genesis, but then the new promise for Judah takes the pattern of the old promise to Joseph. So there's some kind of relationship here. It's not the old promise, but it has the same pattern. And there's some kind of maybe transfer going on from Joseph to Judah. Continuing with the blessing to Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? This is the language where we get the Lion of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, verse 10, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Scepter is a really pregnant uh, image in Scripture. In when, the, uh, when the tribes of Israel are coming into the promised land, Balaam sees them from a high point. There's a kind of a false prophet, Balaam, and he sees them coming. And the Holy Spirit overwhelms him, and he's and he, contrary to what he, what he wants to say. And what he does say, when he sees Israel encamped, he says, I see him, but not now. I look at him, but not near. A star shall appear from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall smash the forehead of Moab, and overcome all the sons of Sheth. That's Numbers 24. The scepter idea gets picked up again, and it's, it's a symbol of the royal reign of Judah. And Jacob says, the scepter, so on the one hand, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And I was curious about that term. According to one commentator, it's a euphemism for Judah siring a line of kings. It's one possibility. And then he says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We go all the way to the New Testament. The whole letter to the Romans is framed by the obedience of faith 
Paul's talking about himself as an apostle, and his role is to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. There's a promise here that the, that the, the offspring of Judah will have, that to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 11, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Interesting donkey and colt language, right? Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Makes us think of, there's kind of an echo there, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that gets picked up in Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jacob is, is playing with this language of Judah's going to have such abundance that he's going to be able to basically tie his, his, the, the, his baby donkey to a vine and have it eat the richest grapes because there's, just, there's so much prosperity and wine flowing that it's not a waste. It's, it, there's, there's, there's just so much uh, wine that, uh, that it's, it, it's not a waste. This, the, the last time this gets picked up, John 12, 15, Do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. You get the picture. And then the language of washing their garments in wine. Jacob says, He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. In Revelation 7, the saints wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the same thing is said about Jesus when he comes riding in on a white horse in Revelation 19 that he washes his robes in wine. It's a reference to Jesus and his people and how they are cleansed by his blood. That's Judah. That, that's the longest prophecy we've had so far. Moving to verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. We don't get a whole lot about Zebulun and Issachar in Genesis and really throughout the Old Testament. They're kind of minor characters. So not a lot that we can say here, except that we, we see that uh, Ishakar is, is a strong tribe, but, uh, but he's going to be put into, uh, forced into labor uh, to serve uh, his brothers and others. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels 
so that his rider falls backward. So play here on Dan's name. Dan in Hebrew means judge. So if you think of Daniel, the, the, the meaning of Daniel is God is my judge, Dan L. And Jacob is saying that he will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Rachel says, when Dan is born, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. It's interesting though, the, the serpent, the viper language that makes us think of Genesis 3. So there's maybe a little bit of a mix of positive and negative in Dan's story. And if you go to Revelation, when the 144 are sealed, 12,000 from each tribe, Dan is absent. He, he gets, uh, I believe it's Joseph slips in and Ephraim. So you, still have, you always have 12, but Dan is absent. And you kind of have Joseph and one of his sons taking the place. And one possibility is that um, later in, in the Old Testament, we'll see that Dan gets involved in idolatry, becomes kind of a leader in idolatry, and so perhaps kind of has his tribe, his place, his name taken away. And then in the middle of the string of blessings, look at verse 18. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Where is that coming from? It's like Jacob realizes, okay, this is not looking good for a lot of my sons, right? <laughs> it's almost like this enigmatic refrain, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall enjoy royal delicacies. Asher means blessed or happy. Asher is born to Zilpah, Leah's servant. And Leah says, happy am I, for women have called me happy. Blessed, this is, kind of echoes the blessed is the man language in Psalm 1.1. And then just a little couplet about Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns, verse 21. Now we come to another long section. We had a longer blessing of Judah, and now here's a long blessing of Joseph. Looking at verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Ephraim means twice fruitful, so it would be appropriate. You know, Joseph is the father of, of Ephraim. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Ephraim means twice fruitful. But referring to Joseph, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So now this is a little confusing, right? We've heard that there will be a scepter and a ruler in Judah. And now we're hearing that from Joseph there will be a mighty one, a shepherd, and a stone of Israel. That sure sounds like messianic language. But since it's clear that the promised one will come from Judah, I think that we're supposed to think of a messianic ruler in the line of Judah who nevertheless suffers like Joseph. 
Joseph's descent, right? He was thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, went down to the prison, was left there, and then rose to Pharaoh's right hand. Kind of grew up in the seminary of suffering. And this reminds us of, the, of there's, there's a tension in the Old Testament between a suffering servant and a victorious king. And these themes come rushing together in places like Ezekiel 37. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And then in Matthew 6, 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is not just a ruler, it's a humble ruler. It's a shepherd ruler, a shepherd king. So continuing with the blessing to Joseph, verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessing of your father, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Once again, we're kind of confronted. Why the prominence of Ephraim You would, at this point, you'd think there's kind of this tension, right? Will the, will the Messiah come from Judah or will it come from Joseph? That gets resolved later in Psalm 78 when God rejects Ephraim in favor of Judah. This is Psalm 78, 67. He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And so, at that point, the transfer of the hope is complete from the tribe of Joseph to the tribe of Judah. Last and least, Benjamin. My name is Ben. Um, I don't think my parents consulted this verse before they named me. Um, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. In 1 Chronicles, the sons of Benjamin are portrayed as skilled archers and valiant warriors. And there may even be a foreshadowing of King Saul, violent man, Saul the Pharisee even, in his persecution of the early Christians. There's just a thread of violence that kind of runs, a theme that runs through the tribe of Benjamin. So that brings us to the end of point one. Let's talk, so that's the family of Israel. Let's talk about the future of Israel. Without stepping too much on the toes of next Sunday's text, I want to glance ahead at what this passage means for the future of Israel. Israel the man and Israel the nation. Look at the very end of Genesis 49. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, 
to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Notice the fluidity between Jacob, which is his birth name, and Israel, which is the name that God gave him after their wrestling match. One commentator I read observed that it's almost as if Israel is dead in the land of Egypt about, and about to be raised from the dead in the Exodus. The Egyptians have tried to put their death wraps on the people of God, but we will see in the book of Exodus how God overturns all of Pharaoh's attempts to kill the children of Israel. So Jacob is embalmed by the physicians in Egypt. The family mourns his death. And then Joseph leads a funeral procession of both Israelites and Egyptians back to bury his father with Abraham and Isaac in the land of Canaan. Genesis begins with life and ends in death. Begins with a flowery paradise and ends with a funeral procession. But there's hope because the bones are being carried to Canaan. There's got to be a reason for that. Some hope, some expectation. It foreshadows two things I want you to see. First, it foreshadows the exodus when Moses carries Joseph's bones back to the promised land and buries them in the field that Joseph bought in Shechem. Second, it foreshadows the, new, the future new exodus when, according to Isaiah 19, Egypt will call on the name of the Lord. This is Isaiah 19. On that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a memorial stone to the Lord beside its border. And it will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of the armies in the land of Egypt for they will cry out to the Lord because of oppressors and He will send them a Savior and a champion and He will save them. On that day, Israel will be the third party to Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of armies has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This is the new exodus, led by Jesus himself, as he reconstitutes the twelve tribes of Israel and makes good on God's promise that Abraham's family would bless the nations. But all of this redemptive energy is contained. It's like an atom just waiting to be split in the closing chapters of Genesis. As one commentator says, the patterns of the past are projected into the future and activated by the promises of God. Brings us to point three, the faith of Israel. I want to come back to Hebrews 11. We, talked, we mentioned it uh, early on. I want to come back to that. This is Hebrews 11, 20 through 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the, exodus, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Jacob has a hard life. In Genesis chapter 47, when Joseph first brings Jacob before Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks Jacob how, how old he is. And this is what Jacob says. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been 
the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Basically, I have not had the good life that my fathers Abraham and Isaac had. His father Isaac, he was basically raised by a father who didn't love him, right? Isaac preferred Esau. His uncle Laban exploited him for 20 years, tricked him into marrying a, a woman he didn't love, and cheated him out of his wages. When he finally did marry the woman he loved, she died giving birth to their second son, Benjamin. The rest of his sons sell the apple of his eye, Joseph, into slavery, and then convince him that Joseph is dead, so he spends a decent part of his life in clinical depression because of the loss of his favorite son. And yet, when he comes to the end of his life, he says, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And then with his next breath, he blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and that moment on his deathbed is the pinnacle of his faith, according to the book of Hebrews. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Why? Why is it that moment in all of this that Hebrews picks out? Perhaps it's because that moment, more than any other in Jacob's life, demonstrates that he has finally learned to look at life through a gospel lens. Remember, Jacob started out preferring the beautiful young Rachel to the frumpy old Leah. His favorite son was Rachel's firstborn. So far, he's operating like the world operates. His value system was no different than the world's. And we might ask, well, what does this have to do with us? You know, we've done away with firstborns and, and uh, you know, all that primitive stuff, but have we really? The ancient world had its own ideas about what makes the world go round, and it had everything to do with being male rather than female, first rather than last, rich rather than poor, powerful rather than powerless, and beautiful rather than ugly. We've dropped the firstborn male thing. And our social value systems have changed, but our ways of relating to them have not. We have our own social credit systems. And they generally favor the young, attractive, athletic, smart, and upwardly mobile. That's the dating app checklist. In many places, your prospects are still impacted by things like your skin color, how much your parents make, how your facial features are arranged, if your nose is nice enough, and which way you lean politically. And that's really ridiculous when you think about it. But that's not the way of the kingdom. God, God favors Abel over Cain. God chooses Isaac instead of Ishmael. Abraham's firstborn by Hagar, Jacob, he favors instead of Esau. Joseph over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. So just a parting encouragement to those of you, I know I do sometimes, who sometimes feel like God made you out of spare parts. In God's economy, the way down is the way up. He sees not as man sees, 1 Samuel 16. The one who would be first among you must become servant of all. 
For consider your calling, Christ the King. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring about the things that are. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for doing things not how the world does things. For revealing Your wisdom through our foolishness. Your strength through our weakness. Father, forgive us for all of the ways tell ourselves that, that we're, we're second class, we're made of spare parts, the ways that we get obsessed with and compare ourselves to the wealth and the appearance and the favorable birth and, and the, all, of, all of those things, Father. We get so wrapped up in those things and you send us a passage like this to remind us that you have chosen the weak and the foolish to shame the strong and the wise. Father, now as we turn to the table, help us give us give us a sense of your love and your joy and your blessing over us as your sons. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.